Hello and welcome to a new show with me, Aaron Bastani, Aaron Bastani on Twitter, new podcast. We're not quite sure what we're going to call it yet, and so I guess part of the fun this week, the first week, is that I want you to not just comment, obviously, on things you may agree or disagree with about you know the content of today's show, I also want people to propose a title from here on in. Hopefully we'll have a title for the, for the second episode. So far I've had a few really funny proposals. Do you even left? Planet Communism? Yeah, Bastani. Those were the three most interesting. I put them to a poll on Twitter. Do you even left? Got about 50%. No, I don't like do you even left. I prefer Planet Communism, right? That sounds kind of funny, a bit more outrageous. But yeah, so if people can reach out and can maybe make proposals or say, actually, well, I think Yeah, Bastani or I think Planet Communism or Do Even Left, that's really funny. Go with that. That'd be great. It'd be really appreciated. Let's have a good title for a show. Let's make it catchy. I, I, mean, I want something ideally that, you know, the Daily Mail, when they're doing a hatchet job on Navarra in six months' time, quoting something from a show called Planet Communism. I think that's funny. So if you aren't aware of Navarra Media, you can see all our stuff on our website, navarramedia.com. Wired.navaramedia, of course, is our blog. It's been called the BuzzFeed of the left. If you want to aware of our sort of flagship radio show, that's called Navara FM. It's co-hosted by James Butler, Ash Sarker, and myself. It broadcasts every Friday from 1pm on Resonance 104.4 FM. That's where all our stuff is. You can find the show Navara FM on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please feel free to subscribe. And I think this show will probably go on those spaces as well. Again, we'll see. We'll see how how this works. My intention is to do this relatively regularly, possibly once a week, once every 10 days. I want it to be very dense, full of information, kind of gatling gun of stats and facts and figures. That's the intention anyway. I may I may deviate from that. I deviate from lots of good intentions, but let's, uh, let's play it by ear. Uh, the topic for today's discussion is one I think is so germane. It's underlined a lot of the things we've talked about on Navara FM now for years. I think it's been a huge issue for years. I think the rise of Bernie Sanders and the kind of political energies behind him make it more germane than ever. That said, I also think it's very, very, very relevant to a British audience in the form of Jeremy Corbyn and any chance this guy has of becoming the Prime Minister after 2020. They are not that big, by the way, but they'll depend precisely on the people I'm going to be talking about today. That is, you guessed it, millennials, otherwise known as Generation Y. People aged between 18 and 34, born between, I think, 83, 84, 82, and then like 15 years later. So like the late 90s, I guess, right? Now, clearly, when, when you talk about generations, it's tough to sort of say this birth cohort, or, you know, is all one. There are, there are 34-year-olds out there with kids who are 18. So it's difficult to sort of say they're one generation. But it, it, it works. I mean, you could say the same thing about baby boomers. And we've been using that category to understand a whole bunch of social phenomena for a long time. And this does seem to explain a lot of interesting stuff, none more so than sort of, you know, who is voting for Bernie Sanders in some of these Democratic primaries and caucuses, right? But more of that later. On on this topic, I wrote a piece for the LRB blog in February titled Young Americans. I wrote that in the immediate aftermath of Sanders winning the New Hampshire primary against Hillary Clinton. A lot of the stuff, the numbers, are based on his defeats just to Clinton the previous week in Iowa. And long story short... The main cleavage wasn't men, women, wasn't wasn't race, because these are obviously very white states. That's that's now become a thing, especially in the South. African Americans do not vote for Bernie Sanders, um, like Latinos do, for instance, or like Arabs do, or uh, East Asians do, or whites do. But the main cleavage in those states initially, and it's borne out increasingly as this campaign is unfolding, is age birth cohorts. So I think 
18 to 34s or maybe under 30s were six times more likely to vote for Sanders than for Clinton in Iowa. You know, and people that say, well, we saw this all before with Obama. The data is really, really different. I really try and highlight that as much as I can. In an IMO Bastani, I think maybe a week later, that was in February. IMO Bastani is my weekly vlog, by the way, or sometimes fortnightly vlog on Navarra Media's YouTube channel. Again, please subscribe. But also we put it direct to Facebook. That's where it has a lot more shares, really. That was called Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, powered by millennials. So those are two other sort of um, artifacts, not articles, are they? One's a vlog, one's an article, on the topic of today's discussion. And I want to talk about Sanders, of course, and I want to talk about millennials, and I want to talk about how they're transforming US politics, and have been actually, really, for the best part of a decade already. But I also want to make this relevant to a British audience. This is so central to the Jeremy Corbyn stuff that it's just, you know, it's huge. And it can't be overlooked, actually, in any strategy for that guy to win. So, I'm just going to sip a water. This is the great thing about not being in the Resonance studio, by the way. As much as I love Resonance 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station, you aren't allowed to drink in the studio, although I invariably do. Um, so, one, one second, excuse me. Here is a quote, an excerpt from that LRB piece. Here I quote, The transformation in American politics since George W. Bush won a second term in 2004 is remarkable. Changing social attitudes on a range of issues, from race to gay rights, are remaking the country. Non-medical use of cannabis has been decriminalised in several states, and same-sex marriage has been legal nationwide since last June. Barack Obama arrived in office heralded as a liberal, but he's been repeatedly outflanked by movements to his left, in particular on income inequality and police violence against people of colour. The most important social movement of his presidency wasn't the Tea Party, it was Black Lives Matter. Ask anyone who watched the halftime break at Super Bowl 50. The piece goes on by saying, quote, This evolution, both within and beyond electoral politics, is being driven not only by change in the country's ethnic composition, a large birth cohort, millennials, now outnumber baby boomers too. Aged 18 to 34, this racially diverse, economically stressed and politically liberal generation is now the largest in the US labour force. Slowly, they are redefining its politics. The success of Bernie Sanders, even if he doesn't win the Democratic nomination, is a political breakthrough for them. So, racially diverse, economically stressed, politically liberal. That defines millennials for me in the US. I think actually it's kind of true also in the UK. Not to the same extent in terms of the, the racial component. Amazing fact, the US is going to become a majority minority country by 2043. That means that white people will be, excluding Latinos, which is key, will be an ethnic minority in the US. There'll be no overall majority. But by 2019, that'll be the case with newborn babies. So you're seeing, you know, you're seeing this massive shift in American demographics in terms of uh, ethnic ethnic background. But this age stuff, this demographic stuff, is probably as important in terms, in terms of redefining American politics, let's say from now, even like I say from five years ago, all the way up to the middle of the 21st century. You know, millennials becoming the kind of bedrock of the electorate over the next 10, 20, 30 years, and the US becoming a majority-minority country is going to determine a heck of a lot in the United States and, by extension, the world, right? The US is obviously a really eminent power in global affairs that excerpt says states correctly that millennials are a bigger part of the u.s labor market than baby boomers baby boomers are people born after the second world war i think it's like 50 to 65 or something. i don't know something like that right so they outnumber them in the labor market in november's presidential election they'll also outnumber them in the electorate unsurprisingly right you turn 18 you can vote you can also work that's the first election where that's the case for a long time where boomers aren't the biggest birth cohort interesting though even though that should be the sort of door to sort of political watershed, potentially, right? 
even though that's the case, in 2012, interesting statistic this, I hadn't realised this, this is fascinating, let me get this up. Uh, in 2012 election was the first election since 1976 that the oldest boomer age group voted for a candidate who didn't actually win the election. That year, 45 to 64-year-olds backed Mitt Romney, not Barack Obama. So even four years ago, we were seeing the kind of death grip that baby boomers have on, on presidential races in the US slowly diminishing. Uh, interestingly enough, four years before that even, 2008, Barack Obama runs against John McCain, wins, wins big, wins states that Democrats don't normally win, North Carolina, New Mexico. And only one in three white men voted for this guy, right? Which is amazing because, you know, this is what they call Middle England in Britain. Joe the Plumber, White Van Dan. Do you remember the White Van Dan? Emily Thornberry took a picture of Union flag outside his house. Poor bloke. He became an... Un <laughs> I'm sure he didn't want to become a celebrity with a sort of 10-point 10, 10 program on the front page of the sun in his name. But there you go. These people are sort of, you know, Mondeo man. We, we had Worcester woman... For those who don't understand what I'm talking about, don't worry. This is garbage put out by PR people and pollsters. But basically, white middle-class men are sort of projected as, you know, you have to win these people to form a government. Obama in 08 didn't win these people, and he won big. He won big because he won people of colour, he won women, he won the young. So in 2012, in 2008, you're beginning to see the erosion of a particular idea that boomers, affluent middle-class men, determine elections... In the US, that actually hasn't been the case now for eight years. And the same is true in the UK if Corbyn wants to win, right? So unsurprisingly, if you look at net approval, net disapproval ratings, the over 60s love David Cameron like nobody else. Like nobody else. I mean, basically nobody else does like him. But they love him, right? They love him. And baby boomers, like millennials, are a huge birth cohort. But unlike millennials, they actually turn out to vote big time, right? And millennials' voting patterns, when they do vote, are a bit like their consumption of movies, right? So they only turn out for the blockbusters. So in the US, they turned out for the last two presidential elections. They don't turn out for state senate elections, Congress elections, right? Because I don't think they matter. Which is why Republicans control both houses. So when people say to me, Aaron, you know, how can you say that US politics has changed so much? Republicans control both houses. Well, that's because young people don't think that power lies in Congress. Of course it does. But they're voting in the presidential election. And, you know, more often than not, they're just getting involved in grassroots activism. Yeah. When they are getting involved in electoralism, it's not the full Monty, for better or worse. And I think it's safe to say the same will happen in Britain. You may get a huge turnout for Corbyn. You may have a huge movement, voter registration, you know, hundreds of thousands of people joining before then. That may all happen. But I find it hard to believe that young people will vote to the same extent for Labour in council elections or regional elections, you know. It's just not going to happen. So anyway, um, in regard to millennials, why are they so progressive? I mean, well, first of all, you know, two things. They've got more liberal attitudes because they've obviously been raised, they've been socialised in a very different sort of political, cultural context, their parents, their grandparents. You, you, you take that for granted, right? They've been raised in an environment where clearly there is less overt homophobia on television in the papers all the cultural fora through which one participates every day in schools and in church whatever that's one element and you sort of take that for granted right along with that sort of socialization process they clearly use very different technologies to communicate to learn about stuff to, to access information 57 percent of people that voted for corbyn uh, in last year's labor leadership election 57 percent said social media was their number one source of news that's pretty impressive right so they access information they coordinate they organize 
through a different kind of media. That's one element. So one element is socialization. Another element is using new media in different ways to older people. And then the third element is the kind of material economic reality. And that itself that itself has two faces, I think. One is basically the Great Recession, Global Financial Crisis 2007-8 hit a lot of people very hard. It hit millennials the hardest, okay? So they kind of are very disappointed, right, in terms of what, what's happening with um, with capitalism right now, but also automation. So they are really struggling to get jobs in a world where increasing amounts of work are being automated, right? So classically, you explain automation, the Marxist sort of jargon, as you call it, the technological fix. And the technological fix is one of two fixes when labour is getting a bit aggy and you're getting you're a capitalist and your profitability is not as good as you'd like it to be and you want to increase your profitability because you make things for a profit right you make things to make money in capitalism and if the share of if wages are too big vis-a-vis uh, -vis profits you have to do something about it and there's two ways you can do that historically right one is called the technological fix so you bring in new productive processes which mean you can employ fewer people so think of a production line and you have 10 people using a particular technology and there's a fix and you only employ one person you can lay nine off that's a lot cheaper it's a lot more predictable there's less room for industrial activism so that's great if you're a capitalist right so that's the technological fix the second is the spatial fix we've talked about this so often it's part of sort of contemporary globalization spatial fix is uh you basically relocate production to somewhere else right so you have a, a factory plant in the united states workers are on let's say 20 dollars an hour that's too much right so you relocate to china or increasingly Vietnam, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Indonesia, when workers' wages go too high, the capitalists have to relocate to keep profitability high, right? So that's the spatial fix. And that's the stuff that Sanders and Trump as well are appealing to when they say that, look, factories are relocating to Mexico, to, to, to South Asia, to East Asia. That means lost jobs. Now, that isn't just like a political choice by companies. They're not, it's not because they're nasty people. It's because they're capitalists. They're in competition with other capitalists. If you're, in a, if you're making trainers, if you're Adidas and you're making trainers and Nike, are, their overhead in terms of labor cost is 30% of yours because they're based in Vietnam, not in Virginia or something, then you're going to have to do what they're doing. Otherwise, you go out of business, right? So it's not because all capitalists are nasty. This is a rule of how capitalism works. Capitalists are in competition with one another. So, so as well as, say, industrial activism, strike action, you know, that, that might lead a capitalist to go, let's get out of here, right? The workers here are too aggy. They want too much. That's one reason why they either engage in automation, the technological fix, or the spatial fix, relocation. But they're also in competition with one another. So lots going on. Anyway... Millennials are particularly screwed because they are really entering a labour market that is just defined by automation. And we know that in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, huge amounts of work are going to be automated. Now, the sort of the riposte by evangelists of free market economics, the economists and whatnot, will say, well, that's fine because capitalism always creates new jobs. It may create some new jobs, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not Nostradamus. But, I mean, given what we're looking at in terms of... You know, the next 30, 40 years in terms, of, in terms of what's happening with IT, communications technologies, it's hard to imagine. It's really hard to imagine we'll create that many new jobs. And if you look at what's happened to un and underemployment in the developed economies since the sort of 60s, the late 60s, you know, we've been on this path for a while now and it's only going to, it's only going to speed up. The, the sad things for, the sad thing for millennials is this, this age cohort, which is better educated than any, any previous birth cohort, both in the UK and the US and the rest of the European Union, 
is that they're entering a labour market which is really terrible. You know, it's an economy that's terrible compared to 08, before 08, because the economics have fallen out of a particular model of neoliberalism, but also the automation element. So that's really shaping the materiality of millennials. Low pay, low productivity work, very precarious, not saving much, very, you know, a shrinking state safety net, because of course states to bail out banks in 08 had to socialise their losses, a financial crisis therefore became a crisis of sovereign debt, just look at what's happening to Greece right now. Look at you know look at uh, sovereign debt. Even in Germany, it's gone up dramatically in the last uh, well since 0708, UK too. So a lot's changed, and none of it is favouring young people. Now the, this is really amazing. Here you go. One study from the San Francisco Federal Reserve found that since 2009, wages for recent college graduates have grown 60% more slowly than those of the general population. In the UK, it's a similar story with those in their 20s seeing real pay decline by 12% in the several years following the global financial crisis of 2008. Now, I wrote a piece on precisely this in Vice. If you just Google Aaron Bastani Vice, one of the last three or four articles I've written, it'll be on precisely this. Now, young people's wages in the US, how far have they fallen across industries? Amazing, amazing, amazing uh, set of graphs here from the current population survey. I don't know how we're going to do this show. We haven't even got a name, people. So I don't know where we're going to put the notes for the show, but we'll put them somewhere. And if you, if that doesn't happen, again, tweet at me. I'm very happy to share. I'm literally looking at these graphs, right? Very happy to share them. This is from 2007-2013 for young people's wages. This is the age is not given here, right? Decline, real pay, real pay. So that means that even if your wages have gone up one or two percent, if energy, rent in the US, of course, medical costs are very important. If these have gone up massively and your pays sort of fail to keep up, that's a real that's a real terms decline in pay, right? Young people's wages, leisure and hospitality, a fourteen percent decline. Retail and wholesale, a ten percent decline. Professional business, four percent. Fourteen percent decline is huge. Retail and wholesale, leisure and hospitality. These are kind of low pay service sector jobs, right? That's the majority of the U.S. and U.K. kind of economic kind of makeup. I think over seventy percent of U.K. GDP is in services. Maybe more, that's maybe 73, 74%. And people go, well, you know, you know, this is what Wally's say, right? They'll say, well, lots of that is legal services and it's the city. And look, let's be honest, service work for most people in Britain, much of the public, is minimum wage to living wage work in retail, on high streets, in call centres, in outsourced companies, cleaning, security work. It's not working for Deutsche Bank in the city of London, or working for a hedge fund looking at risk in Mayfair, all right? I mean, just, just just don't talk cobblers. Service work in Britain means low pay, unskilled work, low skilled work, I should say. Now, the wages of the youngest workers, here we go. Now, this is, this is phenomenal. This is for the US. Same census, current population survey. Professional and business for 18 to 24 year olds, a decline of over 20% real term. To real term uh, decline, right? Again, remind you this is 2007 2013. Retail and wholesale, over 20%. Leisure and hospitality, 10%. Okay, amazing. So wages are falling for the young in the United States, just like over here in the UK, particularly in those sectors which most people work in low skill service work. That's fed through to declining savings rates. Again, another fascinating statistic here we got from the US. 
savings rates for 45 to 54 year olds, 5.7%. This is the second quarter of 2014. This is from the Wall Street Journal. This data comes out a bit slow. So you think, well, Aaron, that was two years ago. Sure. I mean, this is quite recent data because it takes a while to sort of feed through. 45 to 54 year olds, 5.7%. 35 to 44 year olds, 2.6%. Under 35s, minus 1.8%. So they aren't saving anything, okay? In fact, they're eating into savings. They're probably living off credit. This is not credit like equity withdrawal from a house they own because they're under 35. It's pretty credit cards, it's debit cards, it's bank overdrafts. Uh, it may be servicing student debt, I don't know. So economically, they're precarious. Their pay is crap and it's getting worse and they aren't saving. And if you're not saving in a context where you don't have a state safety net, that's a problem. You can't have children. You can't save for yourself when you're old you can't even look after your own parents right so just in terms of in terms of social reproduction literally in terms of people having enough money to have make new people to have children there's a crisis of what you call social reproduction right because a certain generation is doing so badly out of the status quo right now in 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 the us and the uk and right across the developed world so the economics are there they're not doing great now what's weird when you look at sanders and Clinton is that Clinton's doing very well amongst African-Americans. She's holding up perfectly well, right? He's made huge gains amongst Latinos, but primarily Sanders' big demographic is the young. He's doing very well. Basically, young people, every ethnic kind of background, except African-Americans, especially in the South. And one explanation for that is, of course, Bill Clinton, uh, I think governor of Arkansas, right? A southerner. He's had Democrat kind of networks with African-American Democrats, you know, in the South for 20, 30 years, right? I mean, Clinton's head start over Sanders here is two decades. That's one explanation. But that's kind of weird, right? Because I've said that millennials have suffered more than anybody else from the aftermath of the global financial crisis. But actually, I mean, if you want to be, you know, talking racial terms, African-Americans. And clearly, African-Americans have got a bum deal for a very long time, even after the Emancipation Proclamation, even after the Civil Rights Act. And that's not just like discrimination getting a job. I mean, in real economic terms. One example is the GI Act, uh, GI Bill rather, is something that, you know, it means that um, war veterans after the Second World War, after Korea, after Vietnam, come back to the US, they are offered a whole bunch of goodies, which kind of, they're a kind of parallel, I guess, to the, the, the welfare state we get in the UK after World War II. So they're offered uh, free college education, cheap business loans, cheap mortgage credit, and overwhelmingly this is racialized. So white war veterans get it, but and men, again, it's pretty. that's a pretty important cleavage to talk about. White men get it, black men don't. Um, a whole bunch of things which really mean that uh, African-Americans are op- operating a real distinct disadvantage to white Americans, even if formally under the law they're equal. All that is true. They've never had it really great. But when we talk about the crisis of subprime mortgage debt, overwhelmingly people that had that were African-Americans. So when these people were being, you know, facing uh, repossession and so on it was really you know african-americans were significantly more likely to be suffering from that stuff than white americans latinos despite all that despite effectively obama first african-american president has been a terrible president for african-americans um despite the, the rise of black lives matter hillary's still doing very well amongst them now why is that i think there's a good explanation why that's the case it's because like i say you know african-americans for a long time have been treated like garbage Whereas, let's say, entitled white Americans, particularly young college graduates, probably aren't used to being treated like garbage. They aren't used to having crap pay, precarious work, declining pay, no savings, right? <laughs> Suffering a crisis of social reproduction. These people their entire lives have been told that 
the world is theirs, the world is their royal, so they can they can do anything they want to do. And this is where I think this is fascinating. A 20th, 20th century American sociologist, a guy called uh, James Chowning Davies, says that revolutions don't always come from the most oppressed. Here's a, a quote from him. It's not the poorest who start them, I revolutions, nor is it the richest. Instead, the conditions for revolution are ripest when a prolonged period of economic and social development is followed by a short period of sharp reversal. I mean, that sums up perfectly what we've had since 2007, right? And if you look at the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, that kind of makes sense. Davis calls it the revolution of rising expectations. And I guess if you're a millennial and Obama comes in an OA and he's saying these great things and your life isn't so great and you're really disappointed and you've got a college degree and you've got debt, but the labor market's looking crap and you're not getting the things you want, like, you know, cheaper healthcare would have been great, um, better deal on college college debt, none of that's really happened. What Davies is saying here really explains very well why non-African-American um, millennials have turned over to Sanders in, in such extraordinary numbers. So that's the economic side of it, and we've talked a little about the states. Let's talk a little bit about the UK, social attitudes. There are 20 million millennials. By the way, if you try to actually find information about millennials, it's everybody talks about it in the US, everybody's talking about millennials, Gen Y, very little stuff on it, on it in the UK. Here's a paper from Context Consulting 2014. It says there are 20 million millennials in the UK. Now, here are their main concerns. 23% unemployment, the economy, 19%, social equality, 10%. So the main issues for millennials, 20 million people in Britain, are things that you'd imagine Labour would do pretty well on. When quiz further on the areas millennials want government to focus future spending on, 40%, 41% cite education, 41% cite the NHS, and 39% cite safe and affordable housing as top priorities. So... You're looking at their main concerns, unemployment, the economy, social equality. You're looking at where they want government spending to go up, education, the NHS, housing. I mean, 20 million. This is, you know, this is ripe territory for Jeremy Corbyn to really spread his message. Same survey. 71% of the, the millennial generation don't believe voting makes a difference. Now, I wonder how, how, many, how many of those people answering that poll may have changed their mind in the last year or two. And they're not wrong, right? Because if you look at the UK electoral system, you know, most votes are wasted. The Tories ran a masterful election campaign in May, focusing on 10 to 15% of the electorate. So they're not wrong, but could those 20 million people, huge number, right? I mean, this is just unbelievable. When you look at the sort of the territory we're dealing with here to transform the political conversation, you wouldn't know that. Their main concerns, unemployment, the economy, social equality, their main areas where they want increased government spending, education, the NHS, social, safe and affordable housing. I hate social housing, right? Or at least rent caps, or at least, you know, massive government intervention in, in, in repressing, bringing down, rather, uh, house prices. You know, you wouldn't know this. You wouldn't know that from a paper that 20 million people are saying this, right? Because they're being drowned out, I think, by boomers in the political conversation. In that same poll, it's a Telefonica poll, when asked what they believe is hindering the UK's economic growth, 21% said a lack of social mobility, 25% said a widening gap between the rich and the poor. So clearly, young Brits, let's say between age between 18 and 34, are thinking very similar things to their contemporaries in the United States. Yet we have, yet we have Obama in the U.S. I mean, you might not like him, but he's you know he's obviously not he's not John McCain, he's not Mitt Romney, and we have the, the Conservatives over here, right? 
defied all expectations to win a majority last last year. I'll be doing a future podcast on that, by the way. Amazing story how they did that. We've got the Tories over here. They've got Obama. They've now got Sanders. They're moving left. Movements to the left of Obama now leading to Sanders. And we've got the rise of UKIP and the Tories. Even though young people here, which is a huge part of the labour market, huge part of the electorate, are thinking very similar things to their contemporaries over in the United States. And that's compounded, actually, in electoral preferences in the last election. So, you know, and again, people say, Labour have nothing to build on here. You know, I saw an amazingly disingenuous tweet by a guy called uh, Asa Win Stanley, and he was saying, look, Corbyn's destroying Labour, and he showed changes in opinion polls since the last election. And it, now the Tories are at like 37% and the Labour at 30%. And I'm thinking, well, hang on. In the last general election, Labour got 30%, the Tories got 36 37%, I think, something like that. And he had chosen... A, we all know the polls before the last general election were completely wrong, right? He was using those as baseline rather than the actual general election data. I mean, it's lying, it's deceitful, it's terrible journalism, it's unprofessional. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? Worst case scenario, Jeremy Corbyn is doing as badly as Miliband did at the last election with basically not only the entire mainstream media against him, his own party as well, right? So just being able to internally consolidate what he's done, I think actually that's not too bad. Anyway, last general election, all that data I'm saying to this kind of silent, this silent consensus now amongst millennials in the UK, very similar to stuff in the US, was born out in voter preferences last May. So uh, amongst under 24s, Greens and Labour took 51% of votes. So here we go. 18 to 24-year-olds, 27% vote Tory, 43% vote Labour, 80% vote Green. 25 to 34-year-olds, 33% vote Tory, 36% vote Labour. 35 to 44-year-olds, 35-35 split. Okay? 45 to 54, Tories 36-33, they win. And then 65 over 65s, 47% Tory, 23% Labour. So basically, amongst under 44s, the story the story is being nailed by labor right they're only winning because they win amongst the over 44s and as we know over 44s over 65s are far more likely to turn out at general elections than young people and you know nobody's saying this nobody is saying this you know it was a you know labor got nailed the last election nobody's expecting them to lose but amongst under 44 under 44s they're nailing the tories right so you think well how could they win the next general election how could they stop the tories winning a majority i mean all you have to do all you have to do is increase turnout by under 44s by 10 percent. everything stays the same and i mean i don't know how many seats you'd get clearly it matters where that's happening and so on but it's pretty easy you need a massive turnout amongst the young by the way al gore 2000 loses to george w although that goes to supreme court obama wins in 2008 big time against john mccain there's a seven percent increase in turnout most of that's coming from young people, right? So if you look at this data from 2015, it's not implausible that Labour could do something similar. If there was a 7% increase in turnout from last May to May 2020, and it's being driven by under 44s, very unlikely it's going to come from over 44s, given they already turn out in droves anyway, then that would be huge. So my advice to anybody working at Labour would say, nail the under 44 demographic, nail women, nail ethnic minorities and this is what's interesting right because i mean this is the path to stopping a tory majority and if you actually look at some of the data on this there was an interesting poll another article i wrote about another article i wrote about corbyn in the lib blog last year late last year and it was looking at his polling right 
and Labour do very well as a party net approval amongst the young, amongst women, again, amongst ethnic minorities. Basically, nobody else likes them. The Tories were doing very badly amongst precisely these same groups. David Cameron was doing terribly amongst precisely these same groups. Now, the, the, the sad thing is, the shameful thing is, that Corbyn wasn't doing great amongst these groups, right? Even though they like Labour. So you can say that the young, who I've just told you, look at the data from last May, are so integral to changing you know, the result in four years' time. The young are waiting to be inspired. Women are waiting to be inspired. Ethnic minorities are waiting to be inspired. That's the recipe for success. The bedrock of that, the bedrock of that is millennials, 20 million of them in the UK. Nobody will say this. Dan Hodges will not say this. Uh, Jonathan Friedland at The Guardian will not say this. These are very simple statistics, they're numbers. Think of it analytically, it's pretty obvious what needs to happen. John Harris did a piece, a video piece, and a written piece. John Harris, I don't even know this guy. He's a Guardian columnist, he hasn't got a verified account. What's going on with this guy? He said, why are young people so Thatcherite? They all love the Tories so much. I mean, this is just the most stupid thing I've ever heard in my life because he's saying they love the Tories. They're all going to vote Tory. What, this guy's paid to whine, John Harris. And then you look at the data from last May. I've said it once. I've said it again. 43% vote Labour, 27% vote Tory, but 8% vote Green as well, right? So that's 50, a net 51% of sort of left of British politics. Also, 25 to 34-year-olds, Labour win by 3% over the Tories as well. So, like, young people being Thatcherite, it's just, it's just nonsense, John. It's not borne out in the data. He's kind of those whining, defeatist people, very reactionary guy in a lot of ways. I'll never understand, but there you go. So, anyway, enough about John Harris. I hope today's show has been of some interest in terms of what's going on with millennials, in terms of why they're voting for Sanders, right? Yes, it's changing attitudes. Yes, it's new media. But more than anything else, it's economics. That's driven by, yes, the global financial crisis, but also automation. The data suggests we've got a very similar thing going on over here in the UK. Ripe opportunities for Labour. Are they going to take them? I don't know. Right now, it doesn't look like it, does it? But the attitudes of millennials over here are just like those in the States. And in the States, they're being leveraged for the most left-wing Democrat, you know, potential Democrat nominee we've seen ever. So if they can play their cards right, ripe opportunities here as well. I'll conclude with what I basically said on that IMO Bastani. Millennials, they may not get their way, you know, they may not send a presence to the White House in November. They may not mean that Jeremy Corbyn becomes the Prime Minister in four years' time. I mean, statistically, it looks very difficult, right? I mean, I think actually it's the, the bar of success is very low to stop a Tory majority. Nobody's talking about this, especially against George Osborne, such a weak politician, right? So weak. But it's hard to imagine Corbyn being PM. So they may not get their way with Sanders. They may not get their way with Corbyn. But this is a huge, huge birth cohort. They've got very, very interesting radical ideas it's already feeding through in terms of political outcomes what i would say is that this has you know the process of actively politicizing those opinions around race around gender you know that has they have to find very concrete political uh, manifestations around you know around migration politics and policy around prisons around domestic abuse and the funding for organizations that help people you know victims and survivors of it you know we have the opinions there from these people. We need to turn those into a political program, into demands, into widely understood frames for political debate. Because, yes, maybe it's not 
going to happen soon enough for Sanders, for Corbyn. But in 10, 20 years' time, these people will determine who goes into 10 Downing Street and who goes into the White House. I hope that's been helpful. Like I say, tell me what you think about the show, for better or worse, and also suggest a name. My name's Aramastani, at Aramastani. I'll see you very, very soon. Bye.